Hello and welcome back. You're listening to episode two of our three-part podcast series covering an often undetected liver disease affecting nearly a quarter of the world's population, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which we'll refer to as NAFLD. The more aggressive form of the disease is called non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, which we will refer to as NASH. I'm your host, Dr. Amrin Danani. I'm a hepatologist at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai Healthcare System in New York City. And today we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Michael Fuchs. He's the Chief of Hepatology at the Central Virginia VA Healthcare System in Richmond, Virginia. We're really happy to have Dr. Fuchs join us today to discuss diagnostics and non-invasive testing, or NITs, used to identify and assess patients at risk for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and NASH. Welcome, Dr. Fuchs. Hello, Dr. Dianani. Thank you for having me today. It's a real pleasure. So in our first series, we discussed the burden of this disease, and we quickly learned that this disease really affects a large population of the world, let alone the United States. So you know, we're thinking approximately 25% to 30%. As we know, it's a silent disease. It's typically asymptomatic. And the more worrisome aspect of this is, of course, the lack of awareness of the disease from a patient and clinician perspective. So we definitely have our work cut out for us. One of the things we would like to talk about during this podcast series really is, so we're talking about a silent disease that doesn't have symptoms, that has no specific tests that we can use. So how do we screen these patients and how do we risk stratify these patients with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease? So, you know, we work in pretty different healthcare facilities. So I thought maybe we could start off by you sharing a brief overview of how the VA healthcare system works and how you think it's different from other healthcare institutes. Sure. So the uh, Veterans Health Administration is America's largest integrated healthcare system, providing care at, I think, over 1,200 healthcare facilities, including around 170 medical centers and over 1,000 outpatient sites of care of varying complexity and serving about 9 million enrolled veterans every year. So the American veteran population represents a quite unique population with varying military service branches and military experiences among veterans, as well as varying wartime eras and health-specific issues associated with those eras. About three-quarters of our current veterans served during wartime, with the majority being Gulf War veterans. VHA, or the Veterans Health Administration, offers a large range of healthcare services to our veterans and veterans that have other forms of healthcare coverage, like a private insurance plan, Medicare or Medicaid, can use VA healthcare benefits along these plans as well. We also offer certain disability compensations for service-connected medical conditions. If we look at our patient population, Substance use, mental health disorder, traumatic bodily injuries, hazardous exposures, and chronic pain are very common among our veterans. Currently, 9 in 10 of our veterans are men, but as current trends in the U.S. populations uh, continue, the veteran patient population is predicted to become more racially and ethnically diverse and not consisting of predominantly white Risk factors for NAFLD, such as obesity and type 2 diabetes, are highly prevalent, as you mentioned, in the general U.S. population. But its prevalence among U.S. veterans is even higher. So 
with the enormous burden of NAFLD that was discussed in the first podcast, it is thus not surprising that NAFLD represents a major challenge to the Veterans Health Administration. While we look back, the Veterans Health Administration has been incredibly successful in identifying and treating and curing a significant portion of veterans with hepatitis C, clearly major efforts need to be undertaken to implement an effective population health management strategy for our veterans with NAFLD. This will provide, however, an opportunity to demonstrate that Veteran Healthcare Administration may perform better on quality when compared with healthcare systems in the private sector. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for that overview. I've never worked in a VA healthcare system. So definitely some of the things that you highlight is new information for me. So thank you so much. It will be interesting to hear later on how care models for NASH or NAFLE identification or stratification are different between these two systems. So we'll talk a little bit more about that. So just to kind of now talk a little bit about how do we diagnose NASH. As it stands today, NASH is a histological diagnosis, which means you require a liver biopsy. We have to see certain features on the liver biopsies, such as the presence of steatosis. You have to see hepatocyte injury and including ballooning that we see on histology. Dr. Fuchs, I was wondering if you could comment on the role of liver biopsy as it stands today and how you see this evolving in the future. Sure. I mean, we are all aware that liver biopsy has traditionally been used to aid in diagnosing and monitoring chronic liver disease, as well as to make treatment decisions. And that was based because we did not have any alternative diagnostic tool. With regard to NAFLD, however, it remains the only diagnostic tool that can identify all of the three key diagnostic features of NASH, which you mentioned, and includes steatosis, lobular inflammation, and cytologic ballooning, as well as the degree of liver fibrosis. However, the broad applicability of liver biopsies in NAFLD is limited for several reasons. First, and very obvious, there are far too many people with NAFLD NASH to biopsy. We do not have enough providers to perform these liver biopsies, nor do we have the number of pathologists to read them accurately. Then the procedure itself is obviously invasive and may be associated with patient discomfort, such as pain and potential complications, such as bleeding. Liver biopsies are furthermore less ideal for disease monitoring, and more importantly, even experienced liver pathologists are deferring in their interpretation of presence or absence of NAS features and liver fibrosis stage. So it has become clear already a few years ago that these limitations of a liver biopsy must be overcome, particularly in NAFLD, to properly address this metabolic disease. And non-invasive tests or NITs will be used more routinely, replacing a majority but not all of liver biopsies. This shift towards NITs certainly has been accelerated by the observation that liver fibrosis stage, rather than any of the three NASH histologic key features, determines clinical outcomes. Development of NITs has evolved over time to focus on proper liver fibrosis assessment and thereby minimizing the need for liver biopsy. Great. Thank you so much for that explanation. 
One of the things that you did raise is that we know that despite trying to make the determination between having simple steatosis and NASH, what's really important is fibrosis because we know the stage of fibrosis or the degree of fibrosis you have is what really impacts all-cause mortality and liver-related mortality. And hence the reason our non-invasive tests and they're, you know, really try to focus on characterizing accurately the degree of fibrosis. With that being said, was wondering if you could comment on some of the current non-invasive tests that we do have available that we could use, and maybe also highlight possible scenarios that you think they'd be appropriate for. Why don't we start there? There are numerous non-invasive tests available right now, and some of them are currently not available in the U.S., so I primarily will focus on those ones that are available in the U.S. So those tests can be broadly categorized into blood and imaging-based tests or biomarkers. And the two most commonly used blood tests are the fibrosis 4 index, or we call it FIB4, and the NFLD fibrosis score, or NFS. Both can relatively easily calculate it either by utilizing an app or your calculator, and only require routine lab results such as ALT, AST, platelet count, albumin, and some standard patient information, including age, BMI, and presence or absence of diabetes. In addition, there are patented blood-based biomarkers, such as FibroSure, NIS4, or ELF, some of them just becoming available in the U.S. and where analysis and reporting is done by a commercial lab. On the other hand, we have ultrasound and magnetic resonance imaging or MRI-based tests that are very helpful with regard to fibrosis assessment. Fibroscan or vibration-controlled transient elastography is becoming more widely available in the U.S. and around the world. Fibroscan can assess liver stiffness via mechanically-induced shear wave. Liver stiffness correlates with fibrosis as long as confounding factors such as liver congestion, cholestasis, or iron overload are excluded. The fibroscan device also simultaneously assesses steatosis by measuring the so-called controlled attenuation parameter, or CAP. Elastography can also be measured using MRI, and the degree of steatosis is measured by proton density fat fraction, or PDFFF. MRI data can also be processed with a patented technology and software called liver multiscan, which corrects for the liver iron content. While images here can be obtained locally, reading with the software is done by the patent owner for a separate fee. With those numerous tests available, one of the immediate questions are how to properly use them in clinical practice. Now, before one can answer this, it's important to understand that NITs are being used to assess for clinically relevant so-called advanced liver fibrosis. And to improve the sensitivity and specificity to detect clinically relevant fibrosis, two cutoff values are being utilized for those tests. In general, patients that have a value below the lower cutoff unlikely have advanced fibrosis, while those with a value above the upper cutoff likely have advanced fibrosis. The cutoff values have been determined in different patient cohorts and different ethnicities, 
but may require re-evaluation in specific patient populations such as our veterans. To address this, Dr. Puri from my section has prospectively collected several of these NITs in more than 200 veterans with biopsy-proven NASH. And one of the findings he presented last uh, fall during the ASLD meeting was that a, a single NIT, FIB4, appeared to be superior to any blood-based NITs such as NAFLD fibrosis score or APRI, and that MRI was only slightly superior compared to fibroscan. As a broad rule, one can safely state that these tests have excellent negative predictive values, allowing us to confidently exclude advanced liver fibrosis, whereas false positives results limit the ability to affirm advanced fibrosis. And I think that is very important. More recently, it became uh, furthermore clear that sequential use of two different NITs can further improve identification of those patients that have advanced fibrosis. And we are currently utilizing our prospectively collected data to explore the best combination of NITs to be used in our veterans. Great. So it sounds like from what you're describing, first, one of the things that I just want to point out is, you know, you mentioned a lot of different types of non-invasive testing, both serum-based, based on blood tests that we routinely get on our patients, for instance, doing well visits. But there are also some propriety testing, which has the implication that there will be a higher um, cost um, to some of those testing. And then there's these very um, elaborate, you know, imaging technologies as well that we could use um, to assess the degree of fibrosis. Now, for you and I, who may understand all these testing, when we step back a little bit, the front line really is the people who see this patient population primarily are primary care physicians and endocrinologists. And the question really becomes, how do you see the evolution of these non-invasive testing being applicable to, for instance, a primary care clinician or an endocrinologist. Because if you think about it, you want to be able to differentiate between the people who have very minimal or no fibrosis and those who have advanced fibrosis. Because it's really those advanced fibrotic patients that you really want to engage in specialty care and do all the other things that we do in hepatology care, such as vaccinations, screening for liver cancer. So if you were going to try and empower our colleagues in primary care, what non-invasive testing would you recommend? Would you recommend one test? Would you recommend two tests? Any thoughts on that or how you would do that? Well, that's a challenging question. I may not be able to give you uh, a single straightforward answer that fits all kinds of scenarios. So I think we certainly need to utilize more of those non-invasive tests. However, which tests we use and utilize and all clearly depends on their availability and the experience a provider has utilizing them. So, for example, some of those non-patented tests like FIB4 are easily available. They can be incorporated in a medical record system. They can be ordered, and even commercial labs like LabCorp are putting those numbers out. So, in our facility, for example, Whenever a hepatic panel and a CBC is ordered, we automatically get the FIB4 calculated. So the FIB4 you know, appears to be a very attractive 
so to speak, first-line non-invasive test to utilize, at least to separate and identify those that less likely have any clinically relevant fibrosis. Now, when you compare those tests with imaging-based tests, then obviously cost comes uh, into, into place, where FibroScan certainly you know, is less expensive and better and more widely available than any kind of MRI-based test. Now, in the VA healthcare system, we are probably more fortunate because we do not, like in the private sector, need any kind of pre-authorization to run those tests. So that allowed us to do you know, many more MRIs in our patients and compare them with Fibroscan and FIB4. So if you ask me right now, I would think that it's reasonable to state that one starts with the FIB4 and those patients that have unlikely advanced fibrosis, they can remain with the primary care and the primary care tries to optimize the comorbidities. While those patients who do not fall into this category certainly require a second test as a single uh, NIT, be it FIB4 or any other one, is not adequate enough uh, to further filter those patients that should be referred to hepatology. And what we have instituted is basically that our second line test is a fibroscan, not only because fibroscan is uh, pretty much widely available throughout the VA healthcare system, but it can easily incorporate it into day-to-day -day clinical practice. And it has become a so popular tool at our facility that we offer fibroscans almost every day. I call it actually the electrocardiogram of the hepatologist. So we basically have our patients undergo a fibroscan to determine those that we further want to work up. Now, the challenging part comes in when you have a FIB4 that is you know, just slightly above the cutoff or in the middle of the cutoff, and your fibroscan basically does not place the patient at increased risk for advanced fibrosis. So in those discordant in our scenarios, I think there comes clinical judgments in, into place. Uh, and sometimes we actually then, for further you know, clarification, we obtain an MR elastography or even you know, perform a liver biopsy. But I think the you know, sequence of Fibroscan FIB4 to Fibroscan is a reasonable one. There is another test I mentioned and which belongs into the category of patent and test, which is the ELF test. That test is going to become available in the U.S. soon, but the most experience you know, has been obtained in the United Kingdom where that test is utilized together with FIB4 to determine which patients should be referred to a hepatology or specialty care. So in the United Kingdom, it is the FIB4 and the ELF test that determines which patient is being referred to hepatology. Great. Thank you. So, I, you know, you highlight some very key points. So one of the things that I heard is if you're going to choose an initial test, something that's simple, easy, it has to be cost effective if we're going to be screening or evaluating a large population. FIB4 seems like maybe an appropriate test because those are basic routine blood tests that we get during well visits, for instance. 
The problem, like you mentioned, is that there is this indeterminate range, which can be as high as 30% of the patient population. And that's when having an additional test, such as a fiber scan or an ELF test, could be helpful to decrease that indeterminate fibrosis population. But you're right, even within our healthcare system, we do have a kind of sequential approach where you apply one test and then to increase the sensitivity of that test, you can apply a second test, such as a fiber scan. And it sounds like just like the VA healthcare system that you work with, fiber scans are very useful for point of care testing. You're able to get information on the degree of fibrosis within, you know, three to five minutes. And the nice thing about that also is that you're able to communicate that information to a patient and explain to them what that actually means. That's very, very useful. What we also do is when you have a discordance between non-invasive testing, that's when we make a judgment call to try to decide, do we want to do an MR elastography? But those are the people that probably would benefit best from getting a liver biopsy to just get a histological confirmation of you know, the degree of fibrosis. Based on what you've described, I mean, there definitely are some advantages and disadvantages to the non-invasive testing, so cost, applicability to the general population. One of the things that we didn't highlight that I want to mention is that the age can play a factor in the accuracy or the sensitivity of some of our non-invasive testing, because age is one of the parameters that you put into FIB4, so that's something that's being looked at. And maybe there is some thought that, you know, the cutoff should be different based on the age of the patient and the population that you're looking at. So those, there's more to come in that area. So at your institution, it sounds like you do a FIB4 first, and then you proceed with a fiber scan if needed. And at that point, you decide whether you need an MRI elastography or a liver biopsy. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. And now when we started about three years ago to you know, try to develop an organizational comprehensive care strategy for our veterans with an FLD. We first aimed, you know, we first looked at, you know, what are we doing currently? Because I think that is crucial if you want to develop a new program. And what we found, and that was not really surprising, is that there is a lot of work that needs to be done at the primary care level, particularly with regard to awareness of the disease. And if you want want to build an an appropriate referral model, you need to have the buy-in of your stakeholders, including primary care. So what we did first was extensive education of primary care. And we also realized, at least at, at our facility, that there's only so much you can ask from a primary care provider. And that may be a little bit different you know, in our healthcare system than in the private sector. So in the past, it has not really worked very well to demand you know, from primary care to order a litany of liver tests to rule out you know, other chronic liver diseases in order to finally come to your diagnosis of NAFLD. So what we focused initially on was that primary cares are appropriately aware of the disease or aware of the veterans that are at risk for NAFLD. And uh, having that achieved, we tried out first a model where we asked them to refer every patient with uh, fatty liver on imaging or those that are at risk. And while that clearly you know, increased the referral to hepatology, we very soon realized that 
this is not on a proper pathway how we can manage uh, the large volume of patients that we suddenly were seeing in our hepatology clinics. So then we put into place another step where those patients were first referred to our FibroScan clinic. And after the veterans underwent FibroScan testing, then we did a complete chart review of the patient. We also included uh, that we uh, obtained more important and crucial and correct information about the alcohol consumption while we were obtaining the uh, FibroScan test. So that allowed us to even further and better risk stratify the patients and then refer ourselves, those patients with likely advanced fibrosis to our liver clinics and refer those back to primary care that we, where we were convinced that they did not have any relevant fibrosis. But since we collected over the last two and a half years numerous NITs, in addition to the fibrosis, we have just recently started a new concept and that is utilizing a standard of care tests and compare those with those NITs and whether we can establish an algorithm or model using standard of care test to avoid leaving a fibroscan interpretation, for example, in the hands of primary care. And it looks like this is something that actually can be achieved. And surprisingly, in these different models that we are exploring right now, age or the presence of diabetes alone does not play a role. And we still get a very good correlation, at least with a liver biopsy, that we still consider to be a gold standard of fibrosis assessment. Well, it sounds like you've been doing a lot of great work in the VA system that you currently work at. One of the things you mentioned is helping the primary care physician identify the at-risk population for them to then be referred to the FibroScan clinic. Just curious how you empowered them with that information and was the uptake pretty good? I can tell you that it requires frequent and repetitive enforcement, particularly because we, at least at our institution, see quite a turnover in staff working in primary care. It really requires education at the primary care level every couple of weeks initially, and then also incorporating support staff working in primary care in this process. Another thing that I wanted to mention in terms of education that is often neglected and what we have also implemented in our metabolic liver disease clinic is that we also need to educate our patients. If they are not educated, if they don't understand why we are doing certain things, they're not going to follow our advice. That, I think, is also a very important component in managing this disease. That's a great point that you bring up. It looks like there's many initiatives throughout the country that are very similar to what you're doing. And the reason I say that is the Mount Sinai healthcare system. We have a very similar approach. The only, you know, you highlight, you know, empowering primary care physicians with this information requires reinforcement, re-engagement, constant education and reminders. But one of the things that we've done is screen at-risk populations and we've focused on the type 2 diabetic populations and our screening 
for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in the diabetes clinics or anyone who has diabetes and using fiber scan as a primary tool and then using that as a referral pathway into hepatology or not. But at the same time, giving feedback back to the primary care as in, hey, this person does not have advanced fibrosis and you should work on managing, you know, X, Y, and Z. It does require work, but a lot of this requires making testing simple. One, one equation doesn't fit all, but majority of the time you can apply similar tools to try to stratify this patient population. It will definitely be very interesting to see how as more non-invasive tests get approved and utilize how we're going to incorporate them into our regular routine care for this patient population. I think with that, we will conclude this session. I want to thank you again, Dr. Fuchs, for joining us today. I really appreciate you sharing your views on non-invasive testing as it relates to non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and NASH. It looks like the VA healthcare system, especially where you work at, you guys are doing some great things, and I'm looking forward to seeing some of your data. Yeah, anytime. I appreciate you having me on today's episode, and I look forward to sharing uh, hopefully future information about NFLD care pathways that we specifically developed for our nation's heroes. Thank you. So to our listeners, please join us next time to discuss existing and emerging treatments. This podcast series was developed by NASHNET, a global center of excellence network dedicated to NASH care delivery. Please tune in next time.